welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 187, recorded December 13th, 2014. Yes, so today we're doing our big X-Men X-Over episode. <laughs> X-Over. <laughs> that's, that's a good thing to call it. Yeah, Star Trek and X-Men brought together again. Again, how can this continuity work? But it, 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 it pretty much does. You know, it's, if, if you're a fan of the X-Men, fan of Star Trek, how can you not like it? Right. So, yeah. I, I, and it works and it doesn't work, uh, we'll, which we'll talk about. But overall, I enjoyed these uh, three stories because there was the two Star Trek comic books and then mm-hmm. there was a novel by Michael J. Friedman, so... Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that one as well, but uh, sure. but overall, I think it worked, and I enjoyed them. And the novel is an extension or a continuation, sort of, of the next gen X Men crossover issue. Exactly. So right. the okay. the last panel of the comic book leads right into the first page of the book. So cool. There there is a very loose. I mean, the event continues over, but uh, as far as storyline, they're they're completely two different stories. Okay. Okay. That but one doesn't... frame is the only thing that ties them together. <laughs> okay, but it's still next gen and X Men. X Men, yes. So next there's... gen and X Men. Because okay. I haven't read it, but uh, you are going to inform us about that in an expeditious fashion towards the end. I will. So something to look forward to. Wunderbar. Okay. So um, yeah. So uh, I, I mean, um, I, unfortunately, I'm not the biggest X Men fan. When I was a kid, I, you know, I, I was a kid in the '90s and. X-Men were huge. Yeah. So I would read, you know, quite a bit of X-Men and buy a lot of X-Men and, and X-Force and all the other spinoffs and stuff because, you know, it was the 90s and everybody thought, oh, this money is going to be worth millions of dollars in the future. <laughs> <laughs> so I have tons of it that I may or may not have read all of it. But that, that's my one thing with, with these stories is that I know kind of who all these characters are, but right. I'm not as familiar with them as I am with the Star Trek people. Right. And you're even more familiar with them than I am because I am not a kid of the 90s, not, not even close. So um, I've, I've only read like a few X-Men comics. I was, was aware of what it was, but I really haven't read much of them. And I'm certainly not familiar with all the different incarnations through the decades that the X-Men have been around. A lot of characters come in and out, right. although they tend to have the core characters. So there's a lot I don't know about, except, I mean, basically the most I know is really through the movies, which is a bit different from the comics in a lot of ways. So characters that are in here like Gambit, very unfamiliar with Gambit. He shows up in uh, the next-gen uh, comic. So it's I- I'm not as familiar with them. But I will make the general comment that seeing the X-Men in their sometimes outlandish comic book outfits and general looks next to the relatively normal-looking Star Trek people, and yes, I'll include Worf, boy, it makes Star Trek look realistic. 
<laughs> which is something. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no, I'm with you. And, um, you know, you know, we did the X-Men – no, I'm sorry. We did the Doctor Who Star Trek crossover, and we, right. we both thought that that was a good mix because, you know, right. they're both – TV shows from the 60s and, and things like that. And um, I remember thinking, you know, X-Men and Star Trek, that, that doesn't, to me, mix together quite as well as those two do. No. And then it wasn't until I read the, the about the author page here in the uh, about Michael Jan Friedman in mm-hmm. his novel. Right. And it says, uh, since Friedman bought X-Men 1 with part of his allowance in 1963... And oh. he stayed up late to wa- or he stayed up to watch the inaugural episode of Star Trek three years later. You know, I'm like, oh wow, they did come out roughly around the same time. Right. So even though you don't think of them as being part of the same, you know, uh, time period. Time period. They 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 really are. They're both uh, products of the '60s. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Good point. I thought so. Cool. Okay. Well, shall we get into it? Uh, yeah. This first one has the Taz Star Trek folks mixed in with the X-Men. And the title is Star Treks with a capital X at the end. Clever. Issue number one and only. December 1996. Published date. Writer is Scott Lobdell. Pencils Mark Silvestri. Billy Tan. Anthony Wynn. David Finch. Let me just comment that there's a huge number of people that are involved in this production. It's like, I'm not quite sure, and I guess we'll talk about it more later, but a lot of people involved. Inker, multiple inkers. Bat, B-A-T-T, interesting name. Detron, another interesting name. Billy Tan, Aaron Saud, Joe Weems, all inkers. We have Inker Assists by Victor Lamas, Team Tron, Jose Jag, Gillian, Viet Trong, Mike Manzarek. Colors by Tyson Wengler, Steve Furchow, Jonathan D. Smith, Richard Eisenhoff. Letterer, only one letterer, amazing. Dennis Heisler. Assistant Editor, Polly Watson. Top Cow Coordinator, Mike Manzarek. So he's got two credits on this one. Editor, Bobby Chase. Editor-in-Chief, Bob Haras. So can, I, can I stop you right there for a second? Sure, sure. I didn't notice this, but it has Top Cow logo on here as well. Top yeah, Cow is another what, comic book publisher. Marvel has X-Men, obviously. Right. Didn't they have Star Trek? Yeah. At this time period? Right. So what does Top Cow have to do with anything? I don't know. I'm going to have to figure that out. That's weird. Well, why don't you figure that out while I go with my overly long synopsis? <laughs> okay, I'll do that. Okay. The cover features the heads of Captain Kirk and Cyclops in the upper half. Then in the lower half, ten lead characters from the two franchises are running forward to face an ultimate threat. On the bridge of the USS Enterprise, there sits Captain Kirk at the con with Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy standing behind him. They are approaching planet Delta Vega, where Kirk lost his best friend Gary Mitchell and Dr. Elizabeth Daner, both members of Kirk's crew. They are staring at the view screen that will display an anomaly they have been dispatched to investigate. Out of the energy anomaly comes a massive ship that looks almost insectoid. It dwarfs the Federation flagship. Before they can render aid or investigate the ship any further, it is destroyed in a flash of light in the wake of the anomaly's sudden expansion. 
Spock reports before the explosion, sensors picked up seven near human life forms on the ship. McCoy scoffs at Spock's word choice, but Spock says that is what the readings indicate. They were not normal humans. Another massive ship of a totally different and unknown configuration decloaks near the Enterprise. Spock reports the massive ship has fired a projectile at the Enterprise. Shields are raised, but the projectile halts 100 kilometers from the ship. They don't believe their eyes. The projectile is a huge purple humanoid in very strange garb indeed. He identifies himself as the gladiator praetor of the Imperial Guard. He goes on to say he claims the planet in the name of Magistrix Lelandra Neramani for his children Shara and Kaithri. Then he tells the captain and crew to leave or die. The gladiator then moves to pinch the ship and damage the ship's shields. Ohura tells the captain her partial translation of the first ship's transmissions identified itself as a royal transport of something called the Shi'ar Empire. Kirk asks Ohura to continue on the translation and orders Scotty to engineering to get the shields back online. Unknown to the crew, they are being observed by a stowaway named Logan. It turns out that he and his fellow X-Men teleported over just before the ship they were on was destroyed. Logan assesses the people on this strange ship as good people and unexpectedly humanoid for being so far into deep space. He figures their priority is get to the planet's surface quick, hopefully without hurting anyone on the ship. Wolverine makes his way back to the rest of the X-Men, Bishop, Phoenix, Cyclops, The Beast, Storm, and Gambit. Logan confirms they are not on Deathbird Star Cruiser. Rather, they are on a starship named Enterprise from an organization called the Federation of Planets. They are definitely on the other side of the Psionic Rift. He goes on to say Deathbird and her Imperial goons have already laid claim on the nearby planet. They should have known they would end up in a bad situation when Lilandra first asked them to track down her renegade sister, Deathbird. Beast is fiddling with a device that tells him the ship they are on was commissioned for deep space exploration in the year 2245. They split up, with Storm and Beast taking the injured Gambit to the ship's med center. Cyclops and the rest will continue working on a plan to stop Deathbird. Phoenix uses her telepathic powers to find a way off the ship and down to the surface. She finds a way, and they depart. Spock suddenly flinches, having picked up something strange. He asks permission to leave the bridge. He tells Kirk he is following a hunch. McCoy and Kirk are shocked. McCoy leaves the bridge for sickbay. When he arrives, he finds Beast and Storm trying to help Gambit. McCoy is surprised, but immediately recognizes a patient in need of medical attention and focuses on that. He's a doctor, damn it, not a red shirt. Cyclops and his team are on their way to the shuttle bay and are discussing their intentions to borrow a shuttle as quietly as possible. Suddenly, a cool, unemotional voice comes from behind, telling them he must prevent them from accomplishing that particular task. Spock has a phaser and he is pointing it at the strangers. Wolverine attacks, while Cyclops tells him, No! 
Wolverine knocks the phaser out of Spock's hand, but Spock counters with a neck pinch that takes Wolverine down. Wolverine quickly recovers, much to Spock's surprise, and says, Take us to your leader. As Kirk is leaving the bridge to answer McCoy's invitation to meet new friends in the sickbay, he finds the turbo lift is already crowded with Spock and an odd collection of strangers. They meet and greet. Spock informs Kirk they claim they have come from Earth, which makes no sense to either of them. Wolverine says he is looking forward to kicking some major Shi'ar butt with the space cowboy called Kirk. Meanwhile, on the Shi'ar warship, Vizier, their senior scientist, informs Deathbird the psionic energy is self-generating and its source is on the planet. Sensors have picked up a humanoid life form that appears to be controlling this unstable psionic energy. Deathbird orders assembly of a landing party to see if this humanoid is their ally or an obstacle. Cut to Delta Vega's surface, where the wrinkled form of Gary Mitchell, now with red eyes rather than sparkling white, is awaiting for the visitors who are on their way. A second being with psionic power has merged with Gary Mitchell's dead body and is looking forward to ending their solitude. Cut to the Enterprise conference room where Kirk's senior staff and the X-Men discuss strategy. They agree they need to stop Deathbird and figure they are from two different dimensions. The ship is suddenly rocked by unstable psionic energy from the surface. Spock says previously sensors did not detect any sentient life on the surface, but that is no longer the case. Kirk calls for a landing party to beam down immediately. Kirk has a brief discussion with Phoenix, where Kirk, of course, makes a pass. When she comments her husband Cyclops thinks she is beautiful too, Kirk alters his plans of conquest. Kirk tells her of the events that led to Kirk killing his best friend Gary down on Delta Vega, and Phoenix takes it as the killing of a mutant. Kirk explains he had no choice. Gary was becoming omnipotent and was threatening humanity itself. Scene shifts to the surface of Delta Vega after the Enterprise staff and X-Men are there checking out the Scottish town they find themselves in. It's Gary using his powers to reshape matter itself, but there is something more. Storm theorizes two separate threats have joined to create a third. A sinister voice comes from down the street. It's Gary, in the close embrace of Deathbird. She has offered her ship to get him off Delta Vega, so they have made an alliance. Gary says their presence is all too convenient and saves them having to go look for... Gary says their presence is all too convenient and saves them the trouble of having to go look for them. Kirk says, Gary. Cyclops says, Proteus. Gary slash Proteus explains about their recent union and intentions to control the rift, and with it, all of reality. The planet shakes violently. They figure if they are going to stop this, now is the time before Gary Proteus becomes any stronger. Spock, from the bridge, hails Kirk and reports the rift is expanding drastically. They beam up Bishop to use his ability to rechannel vast amounts of energy. Beast, who is on the bridge, offers several suggestions involving the ship's phasers and tractor beams. 
Anticipating imminent attack, Gary throws up a force field around himself that phasers and all other forms of attack can not breach. Kirk asks Jean to telepathically link Kirk's mind to Gary's. She does so, and Kirk starts working his silver tongue to get Gary to recall his humanity. Spock reports they are ready to attempt to destroy the psionic rift. McCoy objects due to Kirk and Phoenix's linkage to Gary, but Cyclops orders Spock to do it. They have no choice. They do it, and Gary slash Proteus screams that they are taking his power source. Gary is weakened enough to ask Jim to stop them while he can. Kirk says he is sorry and lets loose the mega attack. Kirk, Sulu, and Chekhov fire phasers at Gary. Cyclops fires his optic beam. Gambit shoots two whole decks of playing cards at him. Oh, the humanity! Gary is blown to bits. It must have been the Ace of Spades. Kirk searches through the debris, but cannot find any trace of Gary's body. Cyclops is able to use the authority vested in him by the Shi'ar Magistrix to get Deathbird to return with the X-Men to their dimension. Wolverine says he is hoping for a rematch later. Storm says they must leave immediately before the rift closes forever. Kirk and Cyclops exchange pleasantries. Kirk has Deathbird and her people and the X-Men beam to the Shi'ar Star Cruiser, which promptly disappears into the rift. Later on the bridge, McCoy and Spock have a mild verbal sparring match as Kirk orders Sulu to set course for the future. The end. Bum, 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 bum. Exactly. Okay, so there you go. Set course for go. the future. Yeah. <laughs> Yeehaw. You do that, Sulu. So I think when they did this one, they weren't expecting to revisit the uh, this crossover idea, since it was yeah. two years before the next one came out. Right. Yeah. Well. Oh, uh, why? Because they didn't really leave it open. Yeah, I don't know. I or mean, what? I don't know. I just it 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 really feels like a this was a a one time thing, or it was supposed to be. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. But then, you know. I, apparently somebody said, hey, second contact, let's do it. So, oh, which is the name of the next one. By right. The so did you like this one? It was okay, but, you know, it's, uh, no. I mean, am I, I going to dig this up again and read it? No. It just, it wasn't fantastic. But it was interesting seeing the characters. And it was interesting seeing Gary Mitchell again, since I love Where No Man Has Gone Before. It's, it's my favorite episode. Well, is, it, is that my favorite episode, or is it City on the Edge of Forever? Anyway, it's one of my favorites. So I, I kind of like uh, the whole idea of Gary Mitchell. Right. But, uh, but well, like, he wasn't even in it all that much. His body was, but it, yeah. it didn't seem like it wasn't Gary Mitchell. It was... Well, it was the combination of Gary Mitchell and... What's his name? The, the, the big bad from uh, X-Men. Right. Course, whatever his name was. Proteus or something, right? Proteus, yeah. Right. Proteus, exactly. Which, again, a lot of the char- the X-Men characters, definitely the bad guys, I never heard of any of them. Right. I don't know who the Shi'ar are. I don't know who Deathbird is, although I guess I know now, but I have, I have no background in these characters. So it was good that they explained themselves at least as much as they did. Right. 
Right. Yeah, they gave you just enough to to keep going, I guess. Right. And so, did you know these guys? Um, not as not as much as I should have. Okay, so you've heard of Deathbird before and the Shi'ar and all that kind of right, stuff. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Right, and what I thought was funny is that Deathbird, been in a relationship with a, a character that's a, I think he's a Shi'ar, and his name is Vulcan. <laughs> so I thought that that would have been an actual kind of a, you know, you know, kind of like the Dr. McCoy jokes right. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. They could have done something with that, but but they never did. Yeah. So I didn't mention it, but Beast's name is McCoy, and of course... Dr. Leonard McCoy, there was a little joke they had in there when, what, Nurse Chapel says Dr. McCoy, and they both turn their head? They're like, what? Well, yes. You know. <laughs> that was maybe my favorite Yes, and the then what? Yeah. Favorite part of the whole story yeah. was that. That was a good joke, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, it didn't make the cut. I should have I made my synopsis longer. Yeah, next time... You know, you need to beef that up with some detail, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to go a little long. But, yeah, so, it, not my favorite, but, you know, I like the characters. Although, I gotta say, I'm not that familiar with Gambit. I, matter of fact, I'm not really not familiar with him at all. Although, you said that he was in, uh, what, the Wolverine Origins, whatever? W- Wolverine Origins, Origins, right. There you yeah. go. So, I... I, I don't remember the character, and I really don't know what he's about, but i got to say, he's kind of ridiculous, for the uninitiated. Uh, yeah, I like Wolverine. I mean, not Wolverine, uh, Gambit. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the thing is is that he's not throwing the ace of spades like your synopsis implies. He's, uh, well, no, he's throwing a deck of... He's, he's throwing, like, two decks of cards at Gary. Now, I'm sorry. Okay, so he's got some kind of kinetic power or whatever. Okay, that's fine. Right. But if you don't know the character, sure. he looks like a joke. Yeah, I I totally get what you're saying. When you were saying that, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess it does kind of look like that. <laughs> well, no, he's throwing a, a, a bunch of cards at, you know, oh, phasers, uh, optic beam, you know, all these things that you think would be destructive. And Gambit <laughs> throws playing cards. <laughs> I, I laughed, but whatever. No, I, I totally get it. Anyway. Yeah, so, yeah, so he, he can... Build up energy in the cards, and then he throws them, and then they explode. Well, there you go. There you go. And that's great if you know the character, but... Sure, sure. Yeah, and and that's, you know, uh, we both know Doctor Who very well. We both yes. know Star Trek very well. So when we did that crossover, you know, yeah. we, we we were both in there. And, and, and we probably enjoyed that one more than we did here, because yeah. there was that gray area of the X-Men. Uh, like, like the... Uh, well... Alienation and, and Planet of the Apes. Um, you were more familiar with Planet of the Apes than, than I was, right? And I was more I'm familiar, pretty, with, pretty familiar with, with it. Alienation. Yeah, and I'm pretty familiar with Alienation, too, since I really like the movie and the TV series. Oh, okay. Although well, I, I, I won't say that I saw every episode of the TV series, but I saw right. most of them. But again, that was a but, good one because we were both very familiar with the source material. Very familiar with the source material, and even though it's like not an obvious... Matchup. It's like, well, okay, some are apes and and people, and the other ones are aliens and stuff. But it still kind of worked. This one, you know, I mean, love comics, but with the costumes and everything of the X Men and their weird proportions and things. I mean, like Bishop is huge. I mean, the guy's like like eleven, twelve foot tall. I mean, he's massive, <laughs> and he just towers over everybody else. Right. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and you know, we talk about you know Ahura's costume being you know revealing, especially in the old Taz days. But yeah, you know, she's pretty modest compared to what Jean Grey's. I mean, yes, Jean oh, Grey yeah. has more material on, but it leads less to the imagination than even what Ahura's wearing. Oh yeah, <laughs> so and, it is kind of weird to see those two together. And then the kind of poses they that they have uh, the female X-Men do are very, you know, very suggestive and things. Sure. I mean, the cover has Jean Grey at the very top, and her arms are like up in the air like a go-go dancer or something. It's like, sexy, but what is she doing? I mean, it looks like she's doing a go-go dance. Um, about to unleash the Phoenix powers. Oh, is that what that is? Uh, yeah. It looks like a go-go dance to me. Which is like, okay, that's cool. I'm a guy. I like that. But it's just a little little suggestive. But whatever. And then looking at this Praetor guy, it's like, oh my god. Which one? The, the Praetor. The, or the, the, the guard guy. The, oh, okay. The Mohawk so, guy? So the Mohawk guy. Yeah, okay, so, so the purple guy in the ridiculous outfit that almost looks like some kind of over-the-top Superman kind of outfit. But with like big high Ming the Merciless collars and things like that. He just looks ridiculous. And he's just hanging around there, you know, out in space, arms folded, these massive muscular arms that are amazing. Comic book, you know, it's all comic book stuff. Mm-hmm. But good God. It's like, it's. And I will say in the original Taws, where they had the big hand of Apollo holding the, the <laughs> ship and all that kind of stuff, that was pretty stupid too. But this is like, oh my God. Right. Well. It's different. Yeah, okay, so he's the... I am the gladiator. It's the gladiator, so he's the gladiator. There you go. Praetor of the Imperial Guard. So, that's the guy. Right. Yep, that's him. Another Mohawk example guy. of ridiculous-looking uh, ridiculous character who's fine within the context of, uh, of a good old-fashioned superhero comic, but looks a little out of place with Star Trek. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, th- that's the kind of stuff that when you do, like, the crossover with, like, a... Uh, you know, Superman and Terminator or Batman and Alien, uh, yeah. you know, you get a little bit of that. You're used to seeing one in a horror movie, and then you suddenly throw in a cape person, and then you kind of have to, like, uh, what's going on? You know, you got to kind of take it with a grain of salt in it and just keep right. moving to enjoy the story. Exactly, right. Yeah, you turn up the suspended disbelief uh, control to max. So what's the deal with all the different art people? I mean, all the different creators in this. I mean, geez, all, lots of pencilers, lots of inkers, lots right, of colorers. Yeah. And, and, and they do have a breakdown of different pages, I think, that they right. did, which is fine. That's nice. I didn't feel like mentioning all that. But sure. it's like, what, was, there, was there a particular reason so many different people worked on it? I mean, I know I, it's, a long, it's a long comic, but still. Uh, to be honest, I think it's probably just because... Again, they thought it was going to be a one-time thing, and a lot of people wanted to do something in it. Oh, and, cool! And so they so just kind of yeah. like farmed it out to different folks. I mean, right. uh, when they've done like you know specials like this, uh, that that used to be a kind of a common thing. Oh, okay. To let everybody kind of have a few pages. Cool. There's nothing jarring about the styles changing hugely. I mean, you can see some differences. But really, it wasn't that jarring. What did you think? No, I thought it the same thing. Yeah. Uh, no, I will, I will say that... Oh, oh go, go ahead. ahead. 
I will say that towards the beginning, the phasers looked realistic. I mean, it looks like the TV show. Towards the end, the phasers look different. They, they, they don't... Their shape is... Their details are a little different from the real phasers from the TV show. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. So other than that, I didn't notice a lot of differences as the pages went on. Yeah, there's, there's one shot where Kirk is holding very clearly a phaser that is not standard issue. I mean, it's the right general shape, but it's not standard issue. Right. Is it the one that he shoots Proteus with? Yes. Or Gary? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I can jump down to that page. But, yeah, I mean, well, if you're at that page, that you know, take yeah, a look at the okay, phaser. Yeah, I see it now. You know, it, it's the right general shape. It's just there are details that are not right. Yeah, it looks more ray gunish than phaser. Yeah. So, the gladiator guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, so he can change his his size like like Giant Man or Ant Man or something, or or it just looks really big at the beginning, and he really isn't really that big. I think he just looks really big. Okay, okay. But again, I don't I don't know for sure. I am not that well versed in his backstory. There you go. Okay. When we do the crossover between Star Trek and. Legion of Superheroes, uh, I'm going to be in a similar boat because um, I'm not that familiar with those guys either. Right. So that should be interesting. Okay, so the Legion of Superheroes. So what company produces those guys? DC Comics. Okay. So, so the Legion of Superheroes, it's the 30th century, so it's even more in the future than Star Trek. And uh, it's a, a, a group of young superheroes that... that Save the galaxy. Oh, okay. So, okay. So maybe Guardians of the Galaxy got some of their stuff from that? I don't know. Well, okay. Guardians of the... Yeah, no, it's completely I mean, different. that kind of... I know it's different, but it kind of... Well, they're not superheroes. Well, they got kind of superpowers, some of them. They're aliens, but... Okay, fine. Right. And unfortunately, a lot of the Legion of Superheroes was written in the heyday of These Are For Kids. Okay. So they have names like Cosmic Boy and Lightning Lad and, <laughs> you know, uh, Saturn Girl. I mean, they're all... Kind of ridiculous. They're kind of ridiculous. So I'm really kind of curious to see how that's going to mesh with Star Trek. It sounds like even worse than this. But let's find out. I'm kind of afraid it will be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I have no more comments on this one. So have uh, Let's see... I thought the uh, Kirk hitting on Jean was kind of funny. It and, was. And her like, oh, this is my husband. That was good. Yeah. Yeah, so he he says something about her being, you are beautiful. And uh, yeah, my husband thinks so. <laughs> oh, well, let's talk about that cosmic threat. Right. Again. Oh, that was funny. Yeah, that was funny. And then it seemed like Gary Mitchell had gray hair. Um, he didn't have well, gray hair in the movie, did he? Or a show. Uh, he had he had gray temples. He did. Okay. Yeah. So when he was human, it was all normal brown hair. But when he became Super Guy, white sparkling eyes and gray temples like Mister Fantastic. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So that was just me misremembering. All right, oh. and then the uh, the last comment I had was when the Enterprise is shooting the rift uh, yeah. there towards the end. That's yeah. not a very good depiction of the Enterprise. Mm, it looks yeah. like a a pie plate on top of a, <laughs> a couple of sticks. <laughs> Ah, uh, true. 
True. But I did like how they kind of used uh, Bishop's power there at the end. I thought that was good. Yeah. Uh, it's, he didn't it's really good have a have. lot to do until then. Exactly. Yeah, and, you know, having Gambit doing the, the playing card thing was good. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Storm did a few things. Uh, I think Gambit powers. was in there just to, you know, for fan service. Because he is a big, he was really popular there was in the he? 90s. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he didn't have anything to do in the story except he was the reason why the McCoys got together. So, I mean. It, right. But anybody could have done in, that. Anybody could have been. Exa- anybody could have been injured. Right. Right. So. But at least Bishop actually had something to do. Yeah. That's good. And of course, I also kind of liked how Cyclops was clearly the leader guy, and he was working with Kirk as co-leader kind of things. Right. And I did kind of like where uh, where there was some indecision, you know, whether they should do the do the thing to the rift or not. And Cyclops is like, "No, you got to do it. We got to take the risk." So I kind of like that decisive leader. Right. I was always a big fan of uh, Cyclops. He was he was my favorite X Men. He was my favorite X-Man, too. But again, that was when I was younger, and I really wasn't overly familiar. You just like the idea of having a beam shooting out of your eye. Heck yeah! (laughs) That's great. Of course, uh, didn't he have, like, doesn't he have, like, an issue that he's got to wear sunglasses or something? Yeah. He can't can't always... So if his eyes are uncovered, the beam comes out or something? Yeah, that's why he, he has to always wear that visor. Right. In, Which, in the movie, they kind of turned it into these Ray-Bans or whatever, but right. in the comic books, it's always been, you know, this this very distinctive visor. Exactly. A little Geordie-esque. Yeah, that would, that would have actually been a, a kind of a cool scene. Yeah. He's not even in the next one. Right. Yeah, and we're going to get, well, I'll just ask the question now. So, by this point in both franchises, is Dr. X out of the picture? Professor X? Or Professor X? Uh, he might have been dead at this point. In, okay, in because the they're because they're not showing him at all. No, in either one of these comics. No, he he makes an appearance in uh, Planet X uh, okay. via hologram on the huh. holodeck. So uh, yeah, he doesn't make an actual appearance. Okay, and I do remember he him being dead at one point. So this might have been during during that time. Okay, or he went off to. To a, it came to find out he was on the Savage Planet or whatever. It's a long story. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I don't need to hear it. Needless I, to say, he comes back at some point. Yeah, which of course avoids. Yeah, yeah. I was about to. I was about to say something, but avoids the problem of uh, Captain Picard looking an awful lot like, uh, <laughs> like Professor X. But uh, uh, Patrick Stewart wasn't playing Professor X at that time. So. Right. Well, well. Since you brought it up, we'll go ahead and talk about it. in 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 the next, in the next comic, he's not in it at all. But like I said, he is in uh, Professor X is in a hologram in in Planet X. Okay. And uh, Crusher sees him at first, and she was like, "Oh wow, the X Men were right. There is no resemblance. That's all. <laughs> that's all she thinks to herself." <laughs> and then later, okay, uh, little acknowledgement. She doesn't even like say that. who the resemblance is to. She just says, "Oh, the, the X Men were right. There is there is a resemblance." And and they don't have to say that. Right, but then you know. later on, Picard goes there and he meets with uh, with him, and he actually says it. Wow, there is a, a, a very strong resemblance, be, uh, be, or, yeah, between us. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm like, that is hilarious. That uh, 
And and, and I, I didn't. I didn't. When did X Men come out? X Men, the movie. Oh, uh, and I, in the in the two thousands, right? Was it that late? It wasn't in the nineties, was it? I was thinking that it was ninety nine for some reason. Oh, well, that's an easy thing to look up, and we can cut this part out. I mean, just no, the, we're the, not the delay. No, the, the delay, the, the typing, and the that's, that's good stuff. Two thousand. Two thousand, yeah. So yeah, so it came out in two thousand. This novel came out in ninety eight. Yeah. So it is feasible that they'd already cast him by the time the book came out, and you know, because you know, there's that is it takes about a year to make a movie, and usually they right. do the casting well before. Right. So but that's either, really looking ahead. Right. Yeah. So either he just pointed out the obvious that they do somewhat resemble each other, or right. he was kind of making a nod to. Yeah, or the same person. Yeah. Well, I mean, prior to the 2000 movie, he's just a bald guy. I mean, Professor X was just a bald guy. Right. So other than the baldness and being white, you know, how much of a resemblance was there until right. Patrick Stewart actually took the role? I don't know. Uh, agreed. Right. Yeah, because at that time, I was I, – I, when I thought of Patrick Stewart playing another character, mm-hmm. I wanted him to play Mr. Freeze. I thought he was <laughs> the perfect Mr. Freeze. Are you? I, I I think it's obvious Arnold Schwarzenegger's the perfect Mr. Freeze. Come on! <laughs> oh, that's the horrible choice. <laughs> horrible choice. <laughs> but I thought that Mr. I thought Patrick Stewart could portray the you know the the loss and the you know the the dual the dualness of you know he's doing this because he has a, a end goal trying to cure his wife but he is doing horrible things that he does feel bad about but you know i thought oh if anybody could portray that it would be patrick stewart right. and then they cast arnold schwarzenegger and i'm like oh they're going a different way for the movie than i wanted them to go yeah <laughs> little yeah, did but, i know they went way the wrong way yeah but to some degree they're justified because i don't remember the actor's name but they had a foreign actor at least i think he was foreign playing uh Mr. Freeze in the uh, 1960s TV show. Well, he was actually played by two different people. But well, I'm, oh, like, really? I'm thinking of the main guy who is not Victor Borga because he was a comedy actor kind of thing. But it was, some, it was, it was like a known um, foreign actor. Right, who just passed away a, a few months ago. Oh, really? He lasted yeah. that long? Because he was no spring chicken in uh, the 60s. Wow. Well, one of one of the two just passed away recently. Oh, because they because uh, they showed his episodes of um, they showed his episodes of, of the Batman. Okay, cool. All right, that's my last comment. Cool. So, shall we find out what Next Gen is doing with the X Men? Yes, let's see. X Men Next Gen almost rhymes. It does. All right, so this one came out. Oh, yeah, and by the way, I could not find any reason why Top Cow was involved in that issue. Uh, right, okay, so there were some references in the credits to Top Cow, which is a comic book company. Right, even and has their logo on the cover, uh, on the title page, but it, there you go. it did not explain. I could not find why. Right, because at this time, both franchises for comic books was owned by Marvel. Right. So, huh? Okay, there's probably a good reason, obviously. We just don't know what it is. Right, yeah. It's been lost to time. Yeah, at least lost to us. Well, it was 16 years ago. Yeah. There was no internets back I'm, then. I'm sure there's somebody out there that knows why. Sure. 
but they perhaps they're listening to this uh, this episode. Right. So if you know, give us a give us a, drop us a line. Yes. Yeah. Star T comic book review at gmail.com. Enlighten us. All right, so this is entitled Star Trek Next Generation X-Men Second Contact, released by Marvel Comics, May of 1998. Was written by Dan Abnett and Ian Edkinton. Carrie Nord was penciler. Scott Coblish, inker. John Callitz, colors. Chris Elopoulos, letterers. Chip Carter, Paramount Liaison. Julio Soto, Assistant Editor, Timothy Tui, Editor, and Bob Harris, Editor-in-Chief, with special thanks to Dave Rossi. Don't know who that is. So the cover shows Riker, Worf, and Data, and they are joined by Wolverine, Banshee, Storm, and Nightcrawler. And all of these individuals are standing in a red fog of some sort. So the story starts off immediately after the events of First Contact. So the Enterprise is on its way home through the rift. And we see Data with only half a face and, and all everything that we would expect from that last frame of First Contact. However, the damage done by the Borg has caused the Enterprise to fall out of the time stream. And they find themselves in orbit of Earth in the late 1990s. They scan the planet and are surprised to find there are two areas on Earth which have the technology they may need. Riker states that it is Shi'ar-derived technology and wonders how it should be on Earth at this time. Picard orders two away teams to beam down and investigate the high-tech locales. Riker, Crusher, and Worf, who is sporting a baseball cap so that nobody can see his bumpy head, beam down to New York's Baxter Building. They make light of how uncomfortable these non-pajama civilian clothes are and that they wonder why the eugenic war is not in full swing. As they near the home base of the Fantastic Four, they notice seven members of the Thunderbolts standing guard. They decide to play it safe for now. They contact Picard, and he is intrigued by these costumed heroes. In Westchester, New York, at the Xavier School for Gifted, the X-Men share a relaxing evening. Jordy, Data, and Troy have entered the mansion unnoticed, and they sneak into Cerebro. Jordy starts to retrieve the tech that they need when Wolverine sneaks behind him and threatens to skewer Jordy with his middle claw, while the other two claws are fully extended and cradling his head. Data is able to grab the mutant and easily toss him aside. Colossus then shows up, armor plating in place, and he punches at Data. Data merely holds his hand up, and the force is enough to send Data backwards, but he never loses his balance or falls. Data mentions the Enterprise in passing, and Data asks, Oh, is Kirk still in command? It seems that the normal restraints for first contact are nulled now that they already know. Later, the bridge crew return to the mansion in their normal Trek uniforms. Picard also arrives to discuss the situation with the X-Men. Suddenly, they are joined by Kang the Conqueror, who you may remember from the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Kang tells his foes and the Enterprise crew that the merging of the Trek and Marvel Universe is threatening to destroy itself and unravel all of space-time. He gives them chronal compasses 
that will allow eight members to travel to two focal points in time that, once unraveled, will destroy the universe. The X-Men agree that they have to trust Kang this time. Picard takes Troy, Colossus, and Nightcrawler to one focal point. He en- it ends up being a war-devastated New York. It is the days of future past timeline, where the Sentinels have destroyed mutants and humans alike in their goal to cleanse the world. There is a fight between some scruffy humans that see the capture of the mutants as a good thing, but the fight is very one-sided until three Sentinels show up. And in case you don't know, Sentinels are giant robotic centuries. Elsewhere, Data's away team of Storm, Worf, and Wolverine arrive at the USS Saratoga in the middle of Wolf 359 battle. In an unexpected move, the Borg start beaming drones over to the Saratoga to try to assimilate the mutants. Once the fighting starts, Worf is very impressed with Wolverine's claws. Storm's lightning takes care of most of the drones, and the rest of the crew take care of the others. Back in the devastated New York, the X-Men and the Enterprise crew take care of the Sentinels with some style. Meanwhile, Kang is in his lair floating on a wooden chair. He tells himself that the focal points that he sent the X-Men to are actually the timeline's way of repairing itself, and that once they're destroyed, that is when the timelines will be destroyed. Oh, he's so evil. Back on the Enterprise, the Traveler and Wesley Crusher suddenly appear. Wesley is greeted by his mother, and he's a little surprised to see the winged Archangel on the bridge. The Traveler and Wesley tell the crew that Kang has lied and that they need to stop the two away teams. Wesley will take Shadowcat, a.k.a. Kitty Pride, to the two away teams and the Traveler will take the Enterprise to Kang directly. At the Battle of Wolf 359, Storm notices that Sisko's lieutenant is actually a former X-Man named John Proudstar. They think that they need to kill him so that his presence will not cause any ripples in the time event. Just as they were about to take their shot, Wesley and Kitty appear and stop them. They watch as Proudstar sacrifices himself to save Sisko from a Borg attack. Wesley tells them that Kane Wesley tells them of Kang's lies, and they speculate that if Proudstar had been stopped by them, then Sisko would have died and never opened the wormhole and became the prophet. In the days of future past, Picard finds Tasha Yar, and they speculate that she needs to be removed from this timeline. Yar seems to be standing above an older Kitty Pride. Kitty has traveled telepathically to her past self in order to try to prevent these events. Wesley and Kitty show up and stop them. Kitty helps take out a sentinel, and Troy helps Yar and the older Kitty send the message to the past to prevent this timeline. On Kang's time ship... Banshee and Riker are making their way through Kang's lair, fighting off some alien bugs. The Traveler is able to do some sabotage to Kang's ship, and they return to the Enterprise just as the other away teams return as well. Kang's plans are foiled, and his ship is destroyed along with him. The X-Men use their chronal compasses to return to their planet, and the Traveler returns the Enterprise to its universe. The X-Men stand in front of the mansion, a job well done, when suddenly there's a bright white light appearing, and the story is continued in the novel Planet X.
Yeah, they're all looking at it, turning to whatever they're seeing, and they're going, what? 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 (laughs) (laughs) So what is that? I guess you find out when you read the book like you have. Right. The novel. It took me 14 years, Ken, but I finally did it. Good for you. (laughs) Anyways. So we're going to talk about this, and then you're going to give us a synopsis of the novel? Yeah, and I'll, you know, I'll make myself available for any questions you may have that, uh, <sighs> that I will not address in the, the very, very brief synopsis. Okay, cool. Let me just first say that for me, the best part about the book is when you see Data on the bridge at his post and a big chunk of his artificial skin is ripped away. I think that's so cool. Right. Visually, I think that's the coolest part of the book. With no eyeball, just blinking lights. Exactly. Um, yes. So he looks like he's got LEDs unnecessarily placed on his uh, uh, on his skull, on his metal skull. Right. Now that was a good visual from the movie. I, yeah. I, I always thought that was a good makeup job. So that was your favorite part. That was my well visually. That was my favorite part. Well, let me pick my favorite part. I think my okay. favorite part was when Colossus punches Data. Uh, Data, and Data just—you can see him sliding back, exactly, still on his feet with his hand out, but he's just like, whoosh, and he says, "Fascinating." <laughs> yeah. So Data's pretty uh, bad butt in this. Yeah, he is. He can yeah. hold his own with the X Men. You ain't kidding. Which we don't get to see that much. I think we might have mentioned this before. I, I think definitely the, the next-gen producers were afraid of him becoming uh, like the $6 million man or something. Right. Doing all this, this stuff. So they, they backed off of that kind of stuff. They, they were really restrained in uh, focusing on Data's abilities. And I do like that they, they do address it at a time or two. Because like, mm-hmm. you think about it, they just need to make a whole bunch of Datas and then just have Data... At every console on the ship, and uh-huh. never lose, right? Because he's he's the best at navigation. He's the best at you know defense. He's the best at everything. Yeah, but not this. Well, he showed that he's good at strategy too. Uh, right. When he's become captain in a few places, right? But you would think that 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 creative part would be the part he wouldn't be as good at. But he, he's pretty good at everything. That's the part that he's he's always working on, though. Yeah. painting. Playing right. with his cat. Right. It, when it comes right down to it, it's the super speed that Data can bring bring to the fore. Right. Or even the ship's computer, for, for crying out loud. I mean, whether it be Data or whether it be the ship's computer, it can react so much faster than the people. It's like when you get into battles, do you really want the slowness of people to be in the mix? Or do you want very competent machines that can think and react so much faster than people. If you had something like Data, or even the ship's computer, and you went into battle, you'd pretty much want those things to run your attack. Right. Yeah, Because they part can react in, so much faster. Yeah, there's a part in the novel, they're being attacked by this ship, and it's like knocking everybody. It, it, it like one shot hits, destroys all the shields, and, and they're very much damaged, and one more shot, they're dead. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they get hit, and everybody falls out of their chair. Because, you know, that's what you do in Star Trek. Hmm. Except for Data. And then it, it actually says Data then, you know, moves over all the all the controls for the ship onto his console. And he's just doing everything for the ship while everybody else is getting up and dusting themselves off. And then I was right. thinking, 
Why doesn't he do that all the time? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they kind of touched upon this in the original Taz series in the episode, I think it was called The Ultimate Computer. Uh, and they kind of poo-pooed and showed why the computer isn't running pings that people have to. But it's like, okay, but that's really not that realistic. I mean, if your technology is that good, how can you afford not to have the computer control the attack? Right. I mean, because your enemies are going to. I mean, I don't know. But then again, the downside of having computers do things is being played out in our own world where every once in a while you see a stock market meltdown because of uh, computer-based trading. So, right. you know. And, and Skynet. Don't forget about Skynet. Well, that's not here yet. but it, And it will come. <laughs> but I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah, I mean, these ultra... F- the reason they use fiber optic connections and computer-based algorithms to do a lot of trading these days is because of the speed that you can get. The only thing is, computers aren't perfect, and when you let them do everything, you end up with flash sell-offs, as we have seen several times in the past decade. In the real world. So, you know, I guess there are some real-world examples where putting everything in the hands of the computers are not the best idea, but if your competitors are doing it, you can't afford not to. Right, right. Good point. Anyway. So, but I'm, uh, I imagine by the 22nd, 23rd, 24th centuries, our programs will be a little bit better than today. Anyway, so Riker knows about Shi'ar technology? Thank you. I, that's, that's the biggest problem I have with this story. Yeah. Also a question, Shi'ar technology is at the Baxter building? So, uh, right. So the Fantastic Four know about the Shi'ar also then? Yeah, everybody in the Marvel Universe. Okay, so they've all, they've all tangled with the Shi'ar. Yeah. Okay, now, I know about the Krull, okay? Right. I don't know nothing about the Shi'ar. Okay. Okay, fine. So they got multiple outer space threats that the Marvel Universe has dealt with. Right. Okay. And of course, right. that, that's not counting all the ones involved in the, uh, you know, the, the Guardians of the Galaxy might have brought up. Although there's right. overlap there, obviously. Well, yeah. So, yeah. So the Guardians of the Galaxy came later than most of these aliens sure. were sure. introduced. So, right. Yeah, they, they, that's that's their normal. That's who they tangle with. Right. Yep. So I'm pretty sure the Shi'ar will make an appearance. Well, it depends on who, as far as the movies, who has the rights to the Shi'ar. Whether it's Fox with the X Men or Disney with them. Um, yeah. With the rest of the Marvel Universe, so I, yeah. Well, where'd they come from? Where they origin? Are they originally an X Men thing, <clears throat> or is I think it something they were originally an X Men thing? Okay, okay. So you had mentioned, and this is something I didn't catch. I must have missed it. But you did mention that the uh, the main time guy villain in this one is also was also on Guardians of the Galaxy, and I don't remember his name being mentioned on Guardians of the Galaxy, but I guess he was there. Kang. Kang. Okay, Kang. Kang. Yes, Kang. Um, and Well, maybe I'm wrong. Isn't he the main bad guy in Guardians? <clears throat> I did not remember that name, but maybe I missed it, even though I saw the movie a couple times. Or maybe his name's... Uh, oops. Maybe I made a mistake. Well, <clears throat> maybe not. Oh, maybe his name's Ronan in it. 
Ronan, okay. that's it. Ronan. Yeah, oops, I was confusing the two. Ronan's the main bad guy, right? Who, by the way, did we say this before? I thought that was a real badly executed villain. Right. I just found him not to be interesting at all. And right. I, 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 don't know that, I don't know that it's the actor's fault, but certainly just bleh, just boring. <laughs> you know, on. No, anyway, I'm with whatever. you. I, I wasn't too impressed. <clears throat> okay. Anyway, well, let's, let's get back All to right, this. All right, so that's a good point, Ken. You, uh, you called me out on it. That, well, I'm just confused. I was just a little confused. Okay, so these guys, the alien race here, um, I've never heard of any of them. And that's probably because they're within the X-Men universe. It just, again, just confuses me that uh, apparently Fantastic Four and maybe other Marvel characters have tangled with these people too. Right. Yeah, no. As you know, with all comic book companies, they they uh, once they introduce somebody, it usually doesn't stay with that one franchise for too terribly long. Right. And then they'll do a big crossover event, and and everybody will be included. Cool, 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 cool. So new things to learn, new characters to uh, revel in, disliking. All right. Yeah. Sorry about the m- misleading you on Kang. Well, this that's not an issue. I'm sorry, Ken. Oh, no. I told you that X-Men was not my forte. Yeah, well, me too. I don't know why. I, I had it in my head. When I saw Kang, I was like, oh, this is the guy from Guardians. But no, his name was Ronan. Yeah. <sighs> hey, hey. Oh, well. Okay. I'll live. Okay, well, let's get back to the original point, which is, how does Riker know about Shi'ar technology? Yeah, right. So the only thing I could think of is that he knew about Shi'ar technology because maybe he read Kirk's. Somehow he knew Kirk. Because Kirk dealt with the Shi'ar in, in the yeah. last issue. Right. But then why would he be surprised that there's people in costumes and stuff? I mean, if, if I know <laughs> that a planet has Shi'ar technology, and the last time we ever dealt with Shi'ar technology was when we dealt with these, uh, you know, Gary Mitchell and the X-Men. Right. I might kind of think that that's where we're at. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I had and, the same and by the way, why do you, I mean, quite frankly, them going to the Baxter building makes a lot of sense. Uh, right. because Reed Richards has all kinds of futuristic high-tech goodies right. in the building, so it wouldn't have to necessarily be Shi'ar technology, but I guess that would be handy. It's from the future and stuff. But. Yeah, I just wish they wouldn't have said that. Why even throw that word in? Yeah, I'm not sure. And, and, that, and you know, I told you when I read these, you know, back when they came out, that for whatever reason, I was misremembering that, you know, when they showed up in second contact it was just like oh yeah our universes are always mixed you know kind of thing uh you know then that was me misremembering something from 14 years ago or whatever right but um but yeah so maybe i was just remembering that one line thinking oh they they know who the shiar are so they the universes must already be mixed right but in the context of the whole story that i don't think that's the case right so Riker mentions a, a stealth mode the Enterprise is in. So right. they're guarded from electromagnetic detection. Yeah. Which no, is pretty cool. I thought Have they the, used that before? The old Enterprise had that. Didn't they, when that, the times they would pop up in the 60s and stuff, they would, <laughs> they would say they, they had that technology, I thought. Um, yeah, okay, so Tomorrow is Yesterday, was that the episode? Whatever. When they use the slingshot effect to go back in time... Right. And then they uh, that, that that pilot in the um, 
in the U.S. air, sh- you know, jet. Right. That one. So they shielded themselves. Okay. Yeah, you know, I, I, I kind of had some loose memories of that, but it was like, oh, that sounds convenient. I haven't heard the next gen guys having that before, but. Um, right. And then uh, Voyager might have said it too when when they went back to the nineties. Oh right, when they met Bill Gates. Well, it wasn't really Bill Gates. It was well, uh, basically that was that's yeah. what Ed Begley. Ed Begley Jr. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Another evidence that maybe the uh, eugenic war wasn't as big a deal as we were led to believe. Because that was in 1999, and it wasn't all destroyed and stuff like like the end of the con miniseries that IDW did. Hmm. Right. Just more evidence that something's not quite right. Yes, yes. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. As soon as I heard that they saw Borg and they were on a starship, and especially when they said, well, they said they were on a Miranda ship, uh, Clash starship. As soon as they said all that, when they transported over, they didn't know where. I knew, I, I had a good feeling already it was Wolf 359. Right. So that was, you know, even though they come back to Wolf 359 a lot in different comics, it is a pretty cool event. So. Right. Well, I think they did it because if you're going to know anything about Star Trek. Right. Next Generation, you, you're going to know of that event. Yes. If you're going to know anything of the X-Men you're, you're going to probably maybe know the, the Days of Future Past storyline. It was a pretty big one. Right. So I think that they just picked, you know, two, mo- you know, very common, uh, very common uh, storylines. Right. Yeah. As opposed to the last one, which kind of, you know, yeah, Gary Mitchell, everybody should know that one. But sure. the whole Proteus and um, all that stuff, you know, I, I, none of that I knew. Rang a bell so. with you. Yeah. So the first idea that that was going to be Wolf three five nine wasn't the uh, when you saw the uh, NCC three one nine one one registry. That was not it. That no. should have been your first clue, dude. I had no idea that that was Cisco's ship. None whatsoever. Can, can. You, so you have that that registry number memorized? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I didn't. I didn't think you were that far gone. Okay. Okay. Good. <laughs> But I did see it, and I was like, "Oh, that's a that's a long registry three one nine one one." Yeah. Well, and what was interesting about it is, it's a Miranda class starship, which is from Taw's days. Right. So it's like, okay, so and I'm looking at it, and it's like, well, okay, maybe the pylons to the nacelles look a little more upgraded, updated, and stuff. Oh, really. But and then the nacelles themselves look slightly different from the Taws days, but um, still they're using that design, and obviously it's a new ship, or else the registry number wouldn't be so high. So it's like, oh, I thought they had. I, I just thought it was a little odd, right? That they're using a Miranda class starship, and I didn't. Re- so did they show enough detail of Cisco's ship in the first episode of um, Deep Space Nine? To know that it that, was a Miranda class? To know that it was Miranda class? Yeah, yeah. Did they? Yeah. Okay. yeah, they show it. Okay. Well, again, I say, really? A Miranda class? <laughs> At least it should have an older number, a lower number. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, if it works, it works, me. Yeah, I guess so. And I guess they still use black, you know, black cabs in London, but anyway. <laughs> 
Right. We still use the, uh, the the space shuttle. Oh, wait. No, we don't. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> They're all mothballed in uh, in different museums around the country. So. so I did like the fight between the X-Men and the Borg. I thought that was good. That is it's good. That's good. Um, it's, it's interesting to see Wolverine fighting alongside Worf. Mm-hmm. Especially when... They're like right next to each other because there's one in particular where, yes, I, I, I realize that Logan is kind of like in a crouch kind of thing. But, man, he looks a lot shorter than well, he, Worf. he is a lot shorter. Well, I know he is. And, and you know, the whole thing when they, they cast the movie Wolverine, maybe – well, it's supposedly they were thinking about Bob Hoskins, uh, which – Oh, no his, way. His, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, the – right. So one of the first people they thought of to play Logan in the 2000... Or no, it wasn't... It was a different producer who wanted to make the X-Men movie, and he wanted to use... He was thinking of Bob, Bob Hoskins, which he would have had to lose some weight. But whatever. He's short. He's nasty. I mean, you could see him like like doing a good job with the acting, even though physically he wasn't really right, uh, you know, from a from a muscular standpoint. Right. But yeah, Wolverine's a small guy. I mean, not tall. Not small, but not tall. But he's really not tall next to Worf. Right. In some of these uh some of these panels. That would be so horrible him as Bob, Bob Hoskins. Well, wh- I mean, okay. Look how but... well he did in in Mario. <laughs> <laughs> I think Actually, he would stay away from it. Yeah. Well, I mean, who Maybe he did. <laughs> I mean, just because the director was was thinking he wanted. I mean, Bob Hoskins was who he wanted to play it. Doesn't mm. mean uh, it ever went that. very far. That's yeah. Funny. Anyway, so there you go. There's a little bit of history. Uh, let's see. Uh, I think the artwork was quite good. Right. Yeah. Um, different than the last one. Yes. But uh, pretty good, although there were some spots not as good. So the first time we see Troy in her own solo panel, it's like, what the heck? I mean, she looks like she's had really, really bad plastic surgery. (laughs) I mean, she has, like, no nose. (laughs) She has no nose. Yeah, no, that is a bad picture. (laughs) That drawing of her is horrible. (laughs) Oh, wow, that is bad. (laughs) <laughs> well, it almost looks like some kind of a, um, like a Salvador Dali kind of uh, abstract. That's it. It almost looks like an abstract drawing of her. Oh, that's too funny. Yeah. That's good. That's a good one. Anyway. But other than that, I think the artwork's pretty good. Yeah, I thought the ships looked good. I, I thought the, you know, I don't think it was quite as inconsistent when you looked at a, a an X-Men and a human uh a Trek human I thought they they worked well in the same panel whereas right. in the last one the X-Men seemed you know so much cartoonier compared to the the Starfleet crew right but here they look more consistent I thought yeah but I mean I definitely like Wolverine's outfit where he's got the hood over his head and the the big long ear things, mm-hmm. I like it, but it's really ridiculous looking. <laughs> when you step back and really look at it, 
it's kind of ridiculous. But right, and if you're going to wear that cowl, you need to have a cape on. There you or go, something. cowl. There you are, cowl. That's the right word. Yeah. Yeah, and what about those guys at the Baxter Building? Um, uh, the Thunderbolts. 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 Who the heck are they? I mean, especially the guy with the like the like the wings on or something that looks like it's an X. Right. It was like, oh boy, that looks that looks like some kind of Saturday morning kids Japanese show or something. I don't know. <laughs> I just, I just uh, I'm yeah. totally un, I'm totally unfamiliar with these guys. I, I did not know why they were there, and and just for that one panel. Yeah. So the only the only purpose they served is to get. Worf and Riker to back off, and an incredibly skinny Dr. Crusher, to back off from trying to get the stuff from the Baxter building. Right. Okay. Which they could have done by just having the thing walk by or something, and they're like, oh, so maybe, we should, maybe we should rethink this, you know? Like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like, why do you have to take and put another X-Men-like team of people into this just to just to muddle the water a bit for people that aren't X-Men experts. Right. And, and are these these guys are related to X-Men? No. In some way? They're just a completely different team. Oh, okay. No, they're not related to X-Men or or Fantastic Four. Uh, I don't know why I really don't know why they're there. I know I'm not I'm not all that familiar with them, so it could be they might be best friends with the Fantastic Four. I don't know, but Okay. Uh not that I ever read I mean, was this like a cross-marketing thing? They're kind of giving them a plug? I guess. To sell more Thunderbolt? Maybe. Ones? And by the way, since what... Does the, does the Baxter building always have like a lightning bolt symbol on the top of it? On the four walls? Did it? Well, I'm looking at a drawing, a panel that shows the Baxter building. And at the, the, the top, like, ten floors has this huge round... Uh, thunderbolt, oh, yeah, thunderbolt sure kind of thing, which is the same symbol as is on the big guy, uh, thunderbolt, uh, you know, big thunderbolt guy on his belt, his belt buckle. Yeah, that's weird. And it's like, what? Huh? What? Uh, oh, that? Up? Uh, I don't know. Uh, well, maybe at some point the uh, well, no, the Baxter Building used to it had used to have the big four on the top. Well, that's exactly. So why? What's with the thunderbolt? And are they trying to say this is actually the Thunderbolts Baxter building? I wonder if at some point, maybe here in the 90s, the uh, the Baxter building was taken over by them. Now, these are good guys, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're good guys. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I'm confused. That's fine. <laughs> well, that would make more sense why they're there. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, um... Yeah, I mean that would make more sense that that maybe at some point uh, here in the late '90s, the the Fantastic Four changed HQs, but uh, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. I always I always think of Baxter Building with uh, Fantastic Four. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Good point, good point. So, what's the deal with Tasha Yar yeah. being thrown in here? Well, and and an older version of Kitty Pride. Right, so you've seen the movie uh, Days yeah. of Future Past, right? So right. In, the, in the original comic book, I think it was further in the future, and instead of Kitty sending Wolverine back, she sends herself back into her younger self right. to try to stop the events that would create uh, that future. Which, 
did she always have that kind of power? I thought she was able to like go through walls and stuff. Yeah, but she also has that telepathic power too. Wow, that's handy. Okay, great. Those two powers don't seem like they have anything to do with each other, but okay, good, good. Right, right. And it might be one that she maybe she gets more developed as she gets older. I don't, I don't know. She doesn't right. use it very often. Yeah. But how would you really use that in a fight? Yeah. Yeah. Well. Except send send information to you two seconds ago that they're going to punch left. Yeah. <laughs> right. So they didn't come up with that power spe- specifically for Days of Future Past, did they? I don't know. I'm not, it, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to answer it. I don't know. Okay. Because it kind of seems – I mean if you just take a look at the movies, it sure seemed like that in the movies. Yeah. Because it was like, where'd that, where'd that come from? But you know, I didn't even think of it. I just when it when it happened, I was like, oh yeah, like the comic. Yeah, okay. Just kept going with it. Yeah, right. Just wondering. Another thing I just went with, but it kind of it did bug me. Is okay. So the reason that the Enterprise was able to go only part of the way back to their own timeline and dimension is because they didn't have a deflector dish. Because a deflector dish was was released. I'm not going to go right. into why because we all know why. Right from right. first contact. Okay, now when that happened in first contact, I was saying, wow, How, if you don't have a deflector dish, you really can't travel fast at all. Because, of course, the whole point of the deflector dish is to make sure that you're sweeping all matter out of your way because you're going at an incredibly fast speed. Right. And so if a grain of sand will go right through. Exactly. So you impact a grain of sand when you're going at warp one or even near warp speed, and it's going to just slice right through your uh, your hull, no matter what it's made out of. So that's why you need a deflector dish. Um, so they didn't have a deflector dish, as far as I knew. I mean, did they make one? A partial one? I don't know. But without a deflector dish, you're not going anywhere. But I... I anyway, I thought it was... Oh. Uh, I thought it was odd that they were able to travel at all, except at very slow speeds. Were they even traveling distance, though? They were just traveling through space time. Well, can you do that without... Um... Well, okay, so, so they followed the Borg into the past. And I know this is something they didn't bother explaining, but they followed the Borg into the past by, by tailgating, basically. Right. You know, by, by going through the same temporal tunnel that the Borg used to go into the past. I, never, they did, I don't think they ever explained how they got back, did they? I don't think so. No, nope. okay. they were just going to go back, and then it was over. Right. So they okay. This is something we're not going to explain. Okay. Everybody feels good about the show. So okay, bye. <laughs> and uh, that's fine. But I mean, can you not travel at least some speed and go <laughs> go back into the future? I don't know. Well, yeah, I you mean, just got to go eighty-eight miles per hour. Ah, uh, that trigger the flux capacitor. It's only if you have a flux capacitor, right? Okay. I, I don't remember Geordi ever talking about the flux capacitor. Yeah, but they but. can get one through the holodeck. Okay. Okay, there you go. <laughs> anyway, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just pointing it out. So you're pointing out all these bad things about First Contact, which, which I really love. Well, it's, my, it's, it's, my, it's my, clearly our favorite TNG movie. So have you heard the recent news about Star Trek Three and that uh, Roberto Orgy has stepped down as director? What? I haven't heard that. Oh, you haven't heard that? No, no. When, did, did this happen a while ago? I've been that uh, out of it? About two weeks ago. Oh, wow. 
Okay. Yeah. So, so about two weeks ago, he stepped down. They haven't announced a, a new director. And uh, somebody was doing an interview with uh, Jonathan Frakes yeah. and mentioned it. And he was like, oh, yeah, I've, I've already thrown my hat in, you know. And, you know, he he says they're at least talking to him. But, uh, you know, he, he does acknowledge that it's a, a, it's huge, a long shot. Long shot. But, yeah, uh, it's a long shot. They're not going to use Frakes. He doesn't have a big enough name. That yeah. They're they're, gonna, because it's it's gonna be a lot of money to make the next movie. Yeah, they're they're saying they're thinking of uh, Edgar Wright, the guy that was gonna direct. Um, oh, uh, wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah, yeah he was gonna do Ant Man. He, he, he dropped Ant-Man. out of Ant Man. Dropped out of Ant Man. Yeah, and of course, I, everybody probably knows uh, Shaun of the Dead and lots of other good movies. But um, actually, Shaun of the Dead was my favorite. The sure. other ones, I'm not as crazy about. Agreed. Same here. Yeah. What. Hot Fuzz or Hot was Fuzz that? and the uh, World's End. World's End. I like World's End, but it's like Hot Fuzz and World's Ends. They were good, but not great. Yeah, so I don't see how he would be on a higher on the list than Jonathan Frakes. Well, someone he's a who's hot... already done it. Well, he's a hotter director. It's the, poli- get... it's the politics of it. Here's what they should do: what have Jonathan Frakes and Leonard Nimoy co-direct? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Nimoy's, I, Nimoy's too old. He's what? He's too old. Yeah, but just throw his name on there and you get... Everybody would go see that movie. Yeah, that's probably true. He's yeah. probably going to be in it. Yeah, they, they they really do need a bigger name. I'm sorry. I mean, a, a bigger name that isn't just a Trek name. He did Thunderbirds. No! <laughs> <laughs> and he did a few, he directed some episodes of some TV shows, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, no, I, I think Frakes is great. He did a great yeah. job on uh, First Contact. I, I think he's a fine director. I just, he doesn't have the, the cachet. Yeah, I guess Roberto Orki didn't either. Uh, well. I, I'd like to know why I, he's he's out. I, so would I. But I, Yeah. Yeah, he hasn't officially said why. He said he's still, you know, part of the project and still oh, yeah. producing it, but he's not going to be director anymore. Yeah, and obviously a key writer, but yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, interesting. Yeah, so weird about Wesley and the Traveler getting into this, huh? I, I liked it. I, great. I, I liked it too, and they really needed him. Because <laughs> they're the ones that told uh, Riker and company, hey, he's playing you for a fool. So they yeah, were incredibly yeah, important. Because he's evil. He's Well, he's evil, yeah. And, yeah, and no, I thought it was and, great. And I think they went off following this guy a little too quickly, quite frankly. Well, we have no choice. It's like, okay. His name's King the Conqueror, and he's a bad guy. And he's we already, believe him this time. He's already stated he wants to control, what, he wants to conquer all of time and space or something? Right. It's like, mm, warning sign. Maybe you shouldn't trust him, but okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so it's kind. Of, and I thought it was kind of cute how uh, the Wesley and Kitty show. That was oh, yeah. kind of cute and stuff. You kind know. of flirting with each other. Kind of flirty, right? Yeah, I thought that was good. Yeah. No, I thought it was good because how else are you going to get somebody that can, you know, move through time and stuff without a chronal compass? You know, either you get the Traveler or you get Q. And I don't see why Q would be involved in this. Right, right. Chronal Compass, by the way. Chronal Compass. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it looks like part of Captain Jack's kit or something. It did look like Captain Jack's uh, armband. Yeah. Of course, I'm 
pretty sure this comic came first. But whatever. It, it, it did. So. Anyway. So let's see. What else is going on? Uh, so Storm is a pretty hot little midriff-free costume. Right. Yep. Yeah, she looks pretty cute. And uh... Can we talk about Kang's chair? Sure. What about it? It's ridiculous. <laughs> so when he's in his space station temporal ship, whatever. Well, yeah. let's talk. Let's talk about Kang for a minute. He looks ridiculous. Yeah, he does look ridiculous. Okay, so let's talk about the chair. Uh, I'm done. It's ridiculous. So it's a wooden <laughs> chair, just floating in, floating in this in this room that right. looks like the inside of somebody's mouth. It's all like ridged and brownish colored with these just laser beams just going throughout the, the room for no apparent reason with some floating monitors. It, the whole right. thing is ridiculous. Yeah. and But the wooden chair is what got me. I'm like, can you not do something more high-tech than just a wooden, high-backed, plush chair? Right. The artists make their decisions. They make a call. I'm sure they, I'm sure they took that straight from... The source material. This is what King sets in when he's in his lair. <laughs> yeah. So, what about King? Oh, I just think his whole helmet thing looks ridiculous. Right. Yeah. So it's a. It looks like a little fishbowl, or not even a fishbowl. What is that? I don't know, but it's it's a helmet with a big glass front on it, and uh, yeah, so he can't breathe. No, well, I don't think it's glass. I think that's. I think it's like a Doctor Doom type thing. Oh, is it? I thought yeah. it had glass in front of it. No. Okay. I think it's just the it's the helmet part is purple, and then he has a metal colored faceplate that just covers well, his whole face except little eye slits. Oh, is that what that is? Yeah. Okay, because his face looks weird too. He's got those vertical lines because you don't see his face. All you're seeing is eye going from it. Okay. Rest is metal. Okay. But with a with a with a human face, kind of, sort of, yeah, kind of like okay. Doctor Doom. Okay, fine, 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 fine. Although this guy's not human; he's some alien guy. I bet he looks human when you take it off. Okay, although maybe you don't want to see it. Maybe it's like <laughs> charred or something. I don't know. But okay. But he has purple pants. Uh, yeah, it's another comic booky kind of ridiculous looking outfit. But whatever. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. Unlike the very cool alien look to the traveler. Uh well. I mean, come on. We 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 got to we got to call it. <laughs> well, okay. What what he? Okay, let, let me go back to a panel that has the traveler. Him, I mean, just but he's saying, just in general, he's just got a jumpsuit, looks right? Kind of silly. Yes. He's just he's just it. he's a humanoid looking guy in a jumpsuit, and his he's got some facial ridges or something going on where you can tell he's alien. Well, no, his yeah, he's bald and he has his nose is straight instead of have doesn't have the, like the little, you know, indent between the eyes, just straight off the forehead. Okay, okay, that makes him an alien. Nah. <laughs> well, he obviously doesn't look human. So, right. I'm just saying, you, yeah. if if we want to call out the bad things of one, Star Trek has plenty of. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Not the greatest stuff going on in two. Yeah. Well, okay, we're speaking of costumes. What's the deal with Wesley and his um, Generations Kirk kind of suspenders outfit? I think he just wanted to look like the Traveler, and that was... That's that's the Apprentice uniform. <laughs> well, okay. His uniform looks different from the Traveler. 
I same mean, color scheme, though. I mean, same on, you're the well, one talking about it. Oh, and I'll go back. Yeah, okay. And I'll, I'll use the same thing right back at you, pal. Yeah. So, but, okay. But I'm just saying it's suspenders. Right. I mean, almost, well, not a, it's like a tank top. Tank top? Well, whatever. It's it like just a looks best, a little long. It, it looks, looks like an interesting best. choice. Yeah, it, it's, it's. I mean, he certainly doesn't look. The, he just the outfit is not cool. I'm surprised Kitty was hot for him. Quite oh, frankly, come on, he's the Wesley. He he is the Wesley. Oh, okay. Well, here's another. Okay, hold. Okay, I'm looking at two panels that are very close to each other, and in one panel, the traveler does not have the suspenders. He has a different looking outfit. Right. But in the next page, he's got the suspenders. So, so he changed okay, yeah, outfits right, a bit. I see. Yeah, he has. He's not. He's wearing like a jacket or something on one page, and then the next one, he has the same thing Wesley's wearing. Yeah. Okay. So he took off his jacket. I don't know. Okay. Whatever. It is inconsistent. It's inconsistent. Okay. Fine. Moving on. Okay. Uh, uh, other top. Other comments. Uh, no, I don't have anything. It was a little jarring, um, the way they just show up on uh, Wesley and and Wesley and Kitty just show up in in Days of Future Past, and they're fighting already, and I kind of felt like maybe I missed something. Yeah. Because she's just being thrown into a sentinel head, and I'm like, when did you show up? (laughs) Maybe they don't have to show you everything. Obviously not. Yeah. Okay, so which one did you like better? I like this one better. I like this one better too, but they're both flawed. But right. still, not not bad, not bad. Yeah, it was good. Okay. All right. So you want to briefly talk about uh, the third chapter, please? All right. So this novel, Planet X, mm-hmm. Michael Jan Friedman, mm-hmm. uh, nineteen ninety eight is when it came out. Okay. All right. Uh, should I even say the cover? All right. Cover just shows Riker, Data, Worf, Storm. Wolverine, and then a holographic greenish tinted, either Captain Picard or, or Professor X. <laughs> okay. All right. So the basically the story is is that the uh, for the X Men it picks up right when that last panel. There's that big flash of light, and then they find themselves in the future, back in the Trek universe on Starbase eighty eight, and eventually the Enterprise comes in and picks them up. Okay. Meanwhile, while all this is going on on a planet called Zelandria, a.k.a. Planet X, the people on the planet are some of the young people, like the 20-ish year olds, start mutating and getting X-Men-like powers. Mm-hmm. So they can shoot lightning from fingers and all the other stuff that X-Men can do. Okay. And uh, just like on Earth, uh, humans fear them and start to try to round them up in concentration camps and stuff like that. So while all this is going on, you find out that uh, 21 years ago, this race called the Dracon somehow seeded the planet so that they would have this mutation. And now they're coming back to round up all the mutants to create their own army. Hmm. Uh, the Enterprise and the X-Men arrive and they do battle in orbit. The, the, the Dracon are bad butts. I mean, like, one shot almost destroys the Enterprise. So uh, there's a lot of space battle. Then there's a land battle. And eventually uh, they're all able to win when the normal non-mutants and the new mutants and the X-Men and the Enterprise all can team up together and defeat them. Uh, So once they're all defeated, uh, Crusher offers to cure the X-Men and the Dracon with the cure she came up with. The uh, Not Dracon, uh, the Xandrians. 
The Xandrians take them up on it so they can all be normal again. The X-Men decline since they say they should not be ashamed of who they are. Then they give a techie techie answer as far as why the X-Men showed up in the first place. And they say it was due to the chronal compasses that Kang gave them. Somehow interfering with Nightcrawler's ability to teleport. And that this somehow created a link to some time device that was there on Starbase 8 that like slingshotted them back to this universe. So Jordy's able to reverse this and they get re- returned home. And this time they stay. And then it ends with uh, the X-Men return back home. Life as usual. And then behind a bush, Q and the Watcher are watching these things uh, happen and they're discussing the events. And we learn that Q himself is is who sent the X-Men to the Trek universe to save Planet X. And then when the Watcher asks why Q would do this, Q says that he has his own reasons and he vanishes. The end. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was Q all along. Okay. Right. It, but, it all comes back to Q. Okay. But it was almost like a throwaway scene. Just just Q like, oh, I was the one who did it. Not all the techie techie stuff you Jordy's been sprouting off about. Yeah. So anyways, it was an interesting read. It took me 14 years since I started it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, it, once it all got said and done, it was good. Okay. But what was funny is that, uh, you know, Michael Jan Friedman, uh, I think he was trying to play a little joke at some point. And there's a scene where um, Worf, Banshee, and some security guys beam over to the the alien ship. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys get killed. One of the security guys. You know, he's a red shirt. Mm -hmm. And his name is Lieutenant Wayne. So he he dies. And the other two lieutenants are um, Ditko and Kirby. Ditko. Right. Which is obviously a, a play on, yeah, uh, you know, uh, Ditko, Steve Ditko, who was sure. co-creator of Spider-Man, and Kurt, Jack Kirby, who created almost everything in the Marvel universe. Right, definitely uh, famous for Captain America. Right. So, and I can, and and uh, you know, Fantastic Four, and you know, a, a lot of what Marvel's made of is Jack Kirby. Right. But I kept trying to figure out who's Lieutenant Wayne. I was like, I don't know of a Marvel guy named Wayne. And then later, they're talking about, you know, they, they make it back and they say the only casualty was Lieutenant Lee. And I'm like, well, Lee, obviously Stan Lee, but there's, his name was Wayne up until that one paragraph where suddenly his name was Lee and then it goes back to Wayne later. So I don't know if that was a, a typo and his name was always supposed to be Lee and then somebody, maybe Stan Lee was like, well, I don't want to be dead. So they changed it, ah! and they just forgot. They missed that one paragraph. I don't know. Oh, it's, it's pretty funny. Okay. So, well, so that was one of the uh, more interesting bits. Yeah, one of the the I thought was funny, just that his name was Wayne. Then it was Lee. Then it was Wayne again. Right. As far as interesting bits go, there was obviously the the holographic uh, Professor X thing that we talked about. Right. There is a romantic storyline throughout the book with Picard having the hots for Storm. Oh, really? Right, and they, you know, and, and, and at this point, Storm is the leader of the X Men, and you know, they, there's a lot of talk about, you know, she probably has the hots for him too, and they they both have conversations about, you know, leaders can't indulge in love affairs and things like that. So mm-hmm. that was kind of interesting. 
And then uh, the X-Men were pretty impressed with uh, Troy's ability to read the minds of aliens that are still millions of miles away. You know, because if you think about it, you go into the solar system of a planet and long-range sensors, you can see a, a ship, and she's able to read some emotions off of them, and they're like, damn, they're far away. What do you, how are you able to do that? You know, right. Even, even Jean Grey and Professor X couldn't do that from, you know, even just a couple of miles. Right. So that was interesting. And then, they, then the whole thing about Nightcrawler's teleportation powers being completely different than their, the normal teleporter, and so he was able to, you know, poof through shields and things like that. So, you know, there was, there was a lot of cool moments. But, um, yeah. Cool. So you're recommending me uh, go out and get this one? Spend a time read it. Uh, I I think I gave it to you a long time ago. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. Because I had because uh, it was when we were on a project together, and I gave you a a copy I bought because I was going to reread it, but I already had one at home, so I gave you the, my my extra. Thanks, Donovan. Yeah, uh, I'll have to find that. I see you kept up with that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you for the synopsis to find out where the trilogy of Crossover went. Right. And to find out it was all Q. All along. So I did hear, uh, do you know who the Watcher is as far as in the Marvel Universe? I do remember the character. I don't remember a lot of details about him, but I do remember the character. So he's a a little bald guy that just is always watching. Yes. So uh, I, I... and, and this is not my theory. Somebody somebody mentioned this to me, but they asked me if I thought that Stan Lee was playing the Watcher in all of the Marvel movies. And I thought about it. And I'm like, he's always in them, and he's never, uh, you know, he's never an active participant in any of the events. But he's always, yeah, he's always there watching. Ah! I thought <laughs> if they do do that, that's really kind of cool. You know? Okay, so so you're saying that eventually they'll because I don't remember seeing the Watcher in any Marvel movies. No, he's not. But the, so so what you're saying is they'll say that they'll, when they do introduce the character of the Watcher in some movie, Marvel movie, it's going to be Stan Lee. Or are you just saying this is all just make believe? Sorry, my theory is make believe. Yes, my theory is make believe. I don't I don't have any basis of that. But, I, I, you know, it is an interesting point that it, if they could do that. Yeah. He, he is one, you know, he's he's a person that's in almost all the movies. True. And he's never an active participant in anything, but he's always just kind of there on the side. He is. He's the librarian. He's Hugh Hefner. He's all over the place. Yeah, he's the, the guy that Daredevil stops from walking into the street. You know, right. it's just, it's, I think it's pretty funny. Yeah. You know, and it's a different take of the Watcher than what's in the comic books because he doesn't have the big bulbous head and the white white gown. But right, uh, it could work. Works for me. I thought it was pretty good. That's the way I'm going to see him from now on. <laughs> Always yeah. watching. Wrinkly little Stanley. <laughs> All right. So we done with this? I think we are. All right. So next week we will be back with. Episode 2 of Classic Star Trek Comic Book Theater. Oh my gosh. The the energy, the thespian energy is just going to be whacked. It's going to be off the scale, off the charts. Right. So we will be doing uh, Gold Key number 18. 
Okay. <laughs> Should be interesting. And of course, we're going to be mixing up the parts because you have to hear how bad all of our Kirk and Spock and Scotty impressions are. Right. And yes. we might even have some some additional thespians. If things go as planned, we will be. Good. So we can spread the embarrassment around. Right. To right. new people. It's going to be so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So that's something to look forward to next week. And then after that, we'll be doing a uh, random IDW episode where we'll do the uh, the Six Doctors story called Flesh and Stone, where oh. all the doctors from all the franchises uh, right. meet up. Right. Captain's Log, Sulu story, and Alien Spotlight Q. Oh, boy. Okay. Three good ones. I hope. Yeah. I haven't, I've read the Sulu one. I haven't read the other two. Yeah, I haven't read any of them. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got the, uh, the, the doctor issue, but I don't have the other two. So I will well, be procuring them in time for the podcast. Lovely. You definitely, You can definitely get them off of uh, Comixology or your local comic book retailer. Yeah. Or Lone Star Comics. Yeah. Any of them. Right. They're all Perfect. Good. Perfect. All right. So okay. with that, I guess we should close up shop and, and start uh, start rehearsing. Exactly. We have some rehearsals to get ready for. Lines to memorize. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on The Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, stcomic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.